Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period in lieu of our global conference series, the SALT Conference, to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts who are leading investors, creators, and thinkers, and also to provide a platform for what we think are big world-changing ideas, and also great investment opportunities. And we're very excited today to welcome Ben Heineke to Salt Talks. Uh, ben is a managing director at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and the head of the Investment Solutions Group. Uh, his responsibilities include product development, marketing, and distribution of investment products, including annuities, insurance, mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds, private debt, equity, and real estate funds, as well as individual equities, fixed income, and structured products. During his career at Morgan Stanley, Ben has held several previous alternative investments as the Chief Operating Officer of Investment Products and Services and the Head of Strategy and Business Management. He sits on the Morgan Stanley Securities Operating Committee as well as the firm's Management Committee. And he also sits on the board of several charitable organizations, including Invest in Others and the Expect Miracles Foundation. Ben holds an AB from Princeton University and an MBA from Columbia University. And hosting today's interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Hey, Ben, it's a, it's a great honor to have you on. And uh, you get you get a very impressive resume. Not quite as impressive as John Dar Darcy's ancestor, George Washington, but I think it is all. It is very impressive. So, uh, tell us something though about how you gravitated into the investment world, though, Ben. Because uh, you, with your resume and your acumen, you could have done anything. Why did you come into our business? Um, well, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Anthony, for having me. I'm excited about this uh, virtual salt uh, talk. I've been uh, I've been I've been at Morgan Stanley uh, 14 years. Um, I was a consultant at McKinsey before that. Uh, for five years. I try not to uh, reveal that too often. Um, but I was a consultant at McKinsey, got my MBA, as we said, at Columbia and was an investment banking uh, analyst for a firm called DLJ, which is long gone at this point. But um, you know, in my time at McKinsey, I did spend a lot of time in the financial services practice. I spent a lot of time in the asset management and brokerage wealth management space. Um, and so just became really intrigued by the industry, really like the proximity it has to the markets and a lot of the interest there, but also the personal component of, you know, helping people and individuals take care of their financial goals. And I, you know, I love the fact that, you know, you get to be near the markets every day and that's an exciting thing to learn about every morning. Um, but then also you have the sort of mission driven part of it, which is to help people deliver, you know, help our advisors deliver for our clients in terms of delivering their financial goals. So it's got a good, balance for me in terms of both interest and mission. You, you, go, go back to DLJ for a second. What, what year did you start at DLJ? Some of us are old enough to remember DLJ, man. Yeah, I, um, I started in 96 and finished there in 99. So I was there for three years in the investment banking uh, group, in the high yield group. So. And so how did you make the, you make the transition from uh, investment banking, high yield into sort of where you are now on the asset management side? 
it's actually, at the time, DLJ had a, a merchant bank, or what you would call private equity at this point, and it was actually attached to the investment bank. So you could, I don't think you could ever get away with that now, but back then, the merchant bank was actually part of the investment bank. And one of the last assignments I worked on uh, at DLJ was for a company that DLJ had actually bought. Um, and it, the company was in trouble, and we spent a lot of time down in Texas working with this management team. Um, trying to help save this company. And I, I really actually enjoyed that part of my investment banking career the most, which was really less about financing companies and more about running companies. So when I got out of business school, I went to McKinsey to kind of help, you know, see how different management teams manage businesses and you know, just give my background in financial services and some of the stuff I did. I ended up working in wealth and asset management. And uh, obviously I've been now at like Stanley 14 years helping to run the wealth management division. So, so Ben, in the 14 years, you've seen explosive growth, right? Morgan Stanley now 15,000 plus financial advisors, $2.7 trillion in financial assets. And you are obviously there at the intersection of Smith Barney merging with Morgan Stanley. Uh, what, are, what are the keys to Morgan Stanley's success in that space? Arguably the, the best, uh, if not the best, among the top two or three in wealth management in the world? Yeah, look, I mean, I think you, one um, big component of his commitment of senior management to the business, obviously our CEO, James Gorman, comes from the wealth management business and knows and likes the business a lot. Um, you know, obviously, Morgan Stanley had its challenges through the financial crisis, but one of the best, if not the best thing that happened, certainly to Morgan Stanley coming out of that, was the ability to structure a joint venture with Citibank um, and eventually uh, merge with Smith Barney. And what that gave us, I mean, it effectively more than doubled the size of the wealth management business. It takes, when you add wealth and asset management together for Morgan Stanley, it's basically almost half the business, both on a revenue and profit basis. So the business is critical to the success of Morgan Stanley, and it gives a scale. Um, you know, on, on some level, these are big, complicated businesses that require lots and lots of investment, and um, the ability to invest across a bigger platform just allows us to build better technology, deliver better products, um, and you know, scale is just so critical in terms of being able to do that uh, efficiently. And you know, the, the scale that we've gotten through the Smith-Barney merger um, certainly in the advisor-led channel has gotten, uh, gotten us to that scale. And then now we've made a couple of subsequent acquisitions, which maybe we'll talk about, uh, that have gotten us to scale and some other parts of the wealth management business, which we're super excited about. You're, you're, when when you, you sit at the head of you know, the uh, product platform at Morgan Stanley, and you've got the pick of the litter, you can go in any direction that you want to go as it relates to hedge funds and uh, private equity alternatives and the whole the whole beeswax, what do you tell your FAs uh, about your world, the world that you're sitting in? Why should their clients have exposure to Ben Heineke's world? Well, look, I think one of the things I probably endlessly and you know, probably you know, FAs are sick of hearing me talk about it, but I think, you know, I just believe that if you have a, if you have a client problem, the more tools that you can bring to help solve that problem, the better. Too many of our advisors use narrow portions of our product platform and don't aren't familiar with or have a background in using the full breadth of the product suite. So like my mantra with my management team is like we need to partner to help our advisors 
understand how to use, bring these tools to bear, whether you're talking about a structured product or a hedge fund or private equity fund, um, the exchange fund, insurance, you know, our clients have a myriad of different financial issues that need to get resolved. And I just believe the more tools you can bring to that problem, um, the better solution you're going to get. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's critical, uh, especially with where the market is today, you know, you, you really have to be flexible and look broadly at investment options because, you know, the, the public equity and public credit markets are, it's challenging right now. All right. So let me push back because Ben, as you know, I deal with FAs every single day. And I know that you're wondering why my hair is not gray as a result of that experience. And that's a whole other topic for the <laughs> e-channel, but we're going to focus on this. Uh, so let me push back. Let me be the typical FA, if you don't mind. Well, why do I need you? I mean, I, I can just buy those five great technology stocks and I can own them in an ETF. And so what, 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 give me the uh, r- rationale to do anything other than that. Ben. Well, look, I think one, I mean, if you listen to our global investment committee, I think they would say, especially now, owning those five technology stocks is probably the exact wrong thing to be doing, um, given just how concentrated uh, the equity markets have become in those big technology names. So I think, one, there's a lot of risk embedded in that investment strategy. And I think, you know, most of our clients need a mixture of fixed income and equity, they need income, they need capital appreciation, they need some level of um, protection from an insurance perspective. You know, we're trying to solve to make sure that our clients have the best chance of delivering on what they need this money to do. And it's really hard to just sort of put all the chips on the table and buy the technology ETF and hope everything goes up, hope Amazon goes up. It might happen, but it's not a, a sound investment strategy for a retail client to take that kind of risk with their financial future. And, you know, the power of diversification is real. So, like, you know, things are going to outperform in various market cycles. I know it's hard to say that because these stocks that you mentioned have been so incredible in terms of performance over time. But you got to prepare for, you know, all different circumstances. And, you know, having sort of all your chips in one basket, I think, is a poor investment strategy over the long term. Well, I mean, you know, listen, four or five of those stocks are representing 25% of the market capitalization of the S&P. And so having done this for 32 years, that always ends in tears. It's not a question if, if it's going to end in tears. It's it's really when. I think you always, get, you always get nervous when it's this time is different, right? Like the dot-com right. bubble, it was like those of us who weren't investing in those companies, you know, we didn't get it somehow, what was going on. And I think, you know, you, you know these are better, bigger, different companies than were in the dot-com bubble to a certain extent. But the same is true. Like, I always get nervous when people say this time is different. Yeah, well, look, some of those names are 160 60 times earnings. So you could even just get slight multiple compression, still have good fundamentals, and see a lot of a, a, a evaporation of value. I mean, one, one, thing we do, one thing we do focus on with those companies is because our, those, those issues are so broadly held, and the appreciation is so significant in a lot of those positions. I mean, one of the big focuses we have is around how to hedge those positions because you have huge taxable gains now that those companies have run up so much. So helping our clients diversify, not necessarily by just selling, but also figuring out ways to hedge some of those. Well, l- listen, I, and, but, but the flip side is uh, some of those com- companies are legendary heirloom-like companies as well. So I'm not really necessarily just picking on the companies. I'm just pointing out that uh, you know, we need broader uh, asset diversification. You clearly 
are at the forefront of doing that. Let's go around the horn for a second. Equities have rallied back. The Nasdaq's up 20%. What areas of the world do you like on a absolute fundamental and relative value basis to what you see in the landscape right now? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I'm not a markets person per se, but look, I mean, I, I do believe, you know, our, our global investment committee's out, you know, with a pro stance towards active management. I think they are, you know, you, you mentioned some of these stocks that have become, as the market has run up, the, the market has become narrower and narrower in terms of where that appreciation exists. And I think that has made everybody increasingly nervous. That said, you know, people tend to turn on CNBC and look at the S&P and think that's the whole market. There are pockets of the market that are not trading very well at all. And I think, you know, our view would be that, you know, active management and being able to pick those, you know, parts of the market that are potentially undervalued, this is a period in the market where that should be valued and should pay off um, over the short to medium term versus just buying the index at this point. So, so the, let's talk about the Global Investment Committee for a second. So, um, what you know, what is their view of hedge funds right now? Wh- what hedge fund sectors do they like or dislike? And and obviously, hedge funds. I mean, let's just face it; they've lost the argument over a decade between active and passive management. And so, yeah. are they about to win that argument, or is that argument permanently lost? What are, What are your people on your Global Investment Management Committee say? Look, I mean, we try to talk about, I mean, you know, we believe that there's always a place in a portfolio for both active and passive. One side is not going to win versus the other in any sort of fundamental way. I think what you've seen over the past 10 years, 20 years, is just, you know, the introduction of this sort of algorithmic computer-based trading, which is, you know, what an ETF is effectively. It's a computer buying based on a market cap weighted or some other algorithm. Um, and the efficiency that that can bring to investing and how cheap it can be, you know, I think that is, you know, something that's here to stay and it's going to be an important part of our clients' portfolios. However, you know, I look at it as, you know, again, with the benefit of diversification, there are parts of the market that are less efficient, um, whether that's geography, maybe outside the U.S., or whether style box, as you get down in the style boxes to small cap names, um, maybe there's less efficiency um, and more willingness to go active. I think there's not just market segments, but market time, time in the market when it pays to go active. And I think our perspective is this is one of those times where owning the index, given the concentration you talked about, it's, it's you know, you're owning the S&P just long. A, you're very concentrated. B, it's volatile. So a lot of our clients, it's not suitable to have a mid-team vol equity portfolio. So hedge funds can do a great job of delivering absolute returns. They can do a great job of weathering certain market cycles. So I think both timing in the market, which we think is now a good time to be looking at active, and also parts of the market. So if you're outside the US, if you're in small cap, maybe better to be more active um, than passive. And certainly, we haven't talked about fixed income, but I mean, certainly in the fixed income markets, I think active continues to win share over passive. So, 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 Ben, you're doing this a long time. You've seen a number of different ups and downs in the markets. Uh, uh, I thought the 2008 crisis was bad. I think it's sort of a dress rehearsal for, for 2020 in terms of um, what's going on uh, vis-a-vis the overall markets. What is your opinion of the current crisis? How is it different from 2008, other crises that you've experienced in your career? And what do you think the aftermath is of the crisis? 
I mean, look, I, I was I was working in New York City during 9-11, um, which I thought would be unprecedented. I certainly, I was working at Morgan Stanley during the global financial crisis, which clearly, you know, the epicenter of that um, crisis was right there in Times Square with Lehman Brothers right across the street from Morgan Stanley. Um, so I thought those two periods in my career would be the most unprecedented. And clearly this has superseded that by factor one, just the fact that it's global. And two, it's because it's hitting every aspect of the economy at the same time globally. So, um, you know, look, I think the thing I would say is the severity of it up front. So how quickly the world drove off into a ditch and how quickly unemployment went up and how quickly the world economic picture changed is unprecedented. I mean, certainly the global financial crisis was quick, but not, not like this. And then the other thing I'd say on the back end is the reaction of the government globally um, and how quickly the government stepped in and the scale with which they stepped in is completely unprecedented. So you, you know, when, we, when they did $800 billion of TARP in the global financial crisis, everyone thought that was just extraordinary. We are at multiples of that already and we're only five months into this um so you know in europe uh draghi didn't say whatever it takes until 2012 so that was three years after the crisis broke so i think the the severity of it to the downside but then the, the extraordinary fiscal stimulus that's come into the end market support that's come in from the governments globally um i think you know is why you probably see the markets trading where they're trading today. And, and yeah, and certainly Mike Wilson uh, uh, from Morgan Stanley, I think he's been uh, spot on in terms of his dissertations on the market. The don't tell him that. Don't tell, don't tell him that. Don't tell him that. Okay, yeah, I, won't, yeah. I won't tell him. We'll probably have to get him on here. I don't know if it, maybe he won't be able to fit his head in the Zoom screen, but <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, because I, I follow him pretty closely, and I think he's... Uh, He's got. He, he's no, been. He's been, he's been very. He's been very on point this through this through this whole crisis. It's been great to have him and his colleague Lisa Shallot out talking to our clients about yep. you know their well, views. You know, and Lisa as well. No, I think the team has really been spot on in terms of identifying uh, what is going on and why it's going on. But let me ask you an editorial question. Uh, mm -hmm. You're watching this level of stimulus, this level of deficit spending. I'm sure clients call you or FAX call you and say, okay, should I be worried? Uh, and am I worried about the right things? Should I be worried about the deficit? Should I be worried about the aftermath of the crisis? And the what seems to be a further divide in terms of the wealth gap in the United States. Well, look, I think that's, I mean, the clients. Look, I think um, a couple of things. One, uh, We've been constructive on the markets this year because of the size of the physical stimulus and the reactions. That's a that's a medium, short to medium term call. Um, I think there is concern, obviously, about how this unwinds. Um, clearly, you know, the United States is a society, and you've seen this with the Black Lives Matter movement and and the strength that that's taken on in the middle of this crisis, clearly reaction to lots of elements of social justice in our society, one being wealth disparity. Um, so I think, you know, the United States has some real issues to address around that topic that we need to address. Um, so what form does that take as we try to address that taxes, um, you know, benefits? Uh, so for our clients, you know, over the short term, it's constructive because we think, you know, we are going to work our way out of this 
um, recession in fairly quick order. I don't know whether it's a V or a U or the shape of the letter, but I mean, by the fourth quarter of next year, we envision us being back to where we were before this whole thing started. But that doesn't fix the overarching longer term structural issues. You mentioned wealth inequality, but also just deficit spending. And how does that eventually come back through? I mean, we've forgotten, we talk a lot about inflation, but inflation has not been an issue in a long time and the painful um, repercussions of that. So I think, you know, whether it's inflation or whether it's higher taxes or reduced benefits to Medicare or Social Security, I mean, longer term, we're talking to our clients about preparing for those eventualities as we try to work our way over the longer term out of, you know, what has been an extraordinary amount of spending that we've done in this country to help us get out of this mess we're in. You know, it's interesting. We we had a uh, a best-selling author. She's a, a university professor uh, at Stony Brook University. Ben, her name is Stephanie Kelton. She came on Salt Talks about a month and a half ago to talk about her new book called The Deficit Myth. And she's basically saying she thinks that you can continue to create this deficit activity because there's a big hole in our economic output, and so it's not going to cause the inflation that people are fearful of and it's not going to be a tremendous drag on long-term investment spending. If she was here right now, uh, what would you say to her? I'm fully now not, I mean, I'm not a markets person. I'm certainly not an economist. So, but look, I mean, you know, you read about modern monetary theory. I think there's a lot of debate about how to send lines. I mean, I don't think any economists don't understand when you pump this much money into the economy, why is there no, why is there no inflation? Like inflation, all the equations that they've learned over the years around inflation have become untrue in the current environment. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty about the, this level of indebtedness globally and how that affects and how that unwinds over time. It has to at some point, but uh, I think you know even economists who are highly more qualified than I am don't really understand why the economy is reacting the way it is. No, listen, it's an, interesting, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon that's taking place. And so we're trying to get our arms around it as well. I mean, we're not, we watched gold uh, rise in value 2009 into 2000, late 2011, then it collapsed. We're watching it rise again now. It may or may not lead to or auger for inflation. We'll have to see. But go ahead, John. I know you have a couple of questions from our audience. Uh, why don't you jump in here and start firing some questions at Ben? Yeah, as the head of the investment solutions group, and you're you're in charge of overseeing a lot of the products that are on the platform, how during a crisis like this, when things are moving very quickly, you sort of have a meteor strike that no one saw coming, how do you balance sort of long-term risk management decisions on behalf of your advisors and your clients, and also the the desire to be opportunistic and to try to buy things that might be on sale? How do you balance those two factors when you're looking at products uh, during a crisis like this? I mean, look, I think it's a great question. I mean, to me, it is, um, you know, the reason why we believe in human advice and the importance of an advisor is that each client's situation is different in terms of addressing a situation like this. So even if the risk tolerance is the same, even if the net worth is the same, the way a client thinks about risk, where they are in their life, what's coming up in terms of expenditure, like you kind of have to react differently for each client. So what we try to do is provide up opportunities for advisors to position protection um, and conservatism, as well as opportunistic opportunities. So like all designed 
to help clients take advantage of this dislocation. That's not going to be suitable for all, for all of our clients, but we definitely wanted to have the ability for advisors who did have clients who could step in um, to do that. And we saw that in alternatives and some of these private equities, special situation distressed funds that we've launched. We also saw in you know the fixed income markets, like when the muni market really dislocated in March um, and all of the mutual funds were redeeming uh, muni bonds, you know, our RFAs were able to step in and buy some of those bonds at really attractive valuations. You know, mutual fund managers had outflows they had to meet. The market was very dislocated. You know, retail was able to step in and get some really good bargains in that dislocation. So, you know, I think it's 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 hard to make a generic comment because it's so specialized to an individual client. But we certainly had a lot of advisors who were more. I think more open to stepping into this uh, dislocation than they were maybe in 2008. Um, so I think they learned a lesson in 2008 that, you know, if they had been pressing enough to buy into the market in March, 2009, you know, they would have looked pretty good. Um, and so I think we had more appetite earlier on in this crisis than we did in 2008. Are there any specific areas of the market? You mentioned a few special purpose vehicle type of things that Morgan Stanley has done. Are there any particular areas of the market that your advisors have gravitated to? And, and as an organization, you guys have spotted what you think is tremendous opportunity as a result of dislocations coming from the pandemic? Well, I think the credit market, I mean, I think honestly the credit markets, I think, you know, look, the, the, the current rate environment is so challenging for our client base. You know, we have an on average older client base, the, the capital base that they're managing, a lot of advisors need that capital base to generate income. You know, we, we've had now, you know, 13, 12 years of extraordinarily low rates and now going even lower. Um, it's been really challenging for savers to generate the income that they need off of their assets. So one big theme that has been true, has continued to be true, and probably even more true, is the idea of like being creative in ways to generate income. Um, that could be real assets, infrastructure, private credit, structured products. Like 80% of the structured products we sell today have an income component attached to them. So I mean, if there's one thing you know, I would say is, is income. Um, and the second thing that I think has become even more increasingly important uh, is taxes. I mean, people will become much more uh, aware of after-tax return um, versus pre-tax return. So being tax efficient uh, in the way in which you invest is, is critical. And I think, you know, we talked about how this unwinds itself. I mean, I think everybody would expect higher taxes in this country. And so that's going to become even more critical and how you are, how efficient you are in owning assets from a tax perspective. You talked about the need to replicate the yield that investors, especially older investors and Morgan Stanley having a client base that's aging, needs to replicate the yield that you would traditionally get from traditional fixed income. Are there areas that, that Morgan Stanley has emphasized in terms of trying to replicate that yield in more creative ways? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, it, one, I mean, I mentioned structure, that's certainly become an income source for a lot of advisors. And I, I think the other one is alternatives. Um, you know, you, you definitely have a big focus on income-oriented real estate and other real assets. Um, and, you know, you know, I think in the fixed income markets, you can, you can make money by taking credit risk, you can take, make money by taking duration risk, or you can give up some liquidity. I think it's tough to take on duration risk now with how flat the curve is. The credit situation, especially now that we're in the midst of this dislocation, I, I'm not sure that our 
climate case is really well prepared to make calls on individual credits at this point. I mean, it's very murky what's going to happen to some of these companies as we work our way through this unprecedented economic um, you know, turmoil. And so liquidity is one where you, know, you can give up some liquidity, you can hand it, the money to a professional manager who potentially has more insight into what's happening in the credit you know, spectrum. So we've, we've, we've had a lot of interest in you know, income-oriented alternatives. Um, and then, you know, look, there's, there's also just like, you know, the annuity products, like, you know, we, the, the math would say that, you know, including annuities in a retirement portfolio for many of our clients, not all of our clients, but for some of our clients, you know, deferred income annuity is a pretty vanilla way to provide some level of guaranteed income in retirement. And so that's a, that's another place people are looking to, to drive income away from just buying individual bonds. So you're a strategy guy at heart, having spent a lot of time at McKinsey. Earlier this year, Morgan Stanley announced the acquisition of E-Trade uh, to further bolster its, its industry-leading wealth management offerings. From what I understand from public filings, that uh, acquisition is moving forward with some regulatory approvals, and E-Trade shareholders recently approved the, the acquisition. Why is that addition so exciting for the firm? Why did Morgan Stanley go out and make that acquisition? And where do you see the industry heading in five to 10 years in the context of, of why you made that acquisition? So a couple of things. I mean, we talked, Anthony and I talked in the beginning about Smith Barney and, and how important it was for us to be able to get to scale in the advisor-led channel. And so, you know, we were able to do that through the Smith Barney joint venture. I think when we talk about kind of the next leg of our growth strategy. Um, you know, we bought a company last year called Solium, which was a stock plan administration company. Um, we had had an existing stock plan administration business um, as part of the JV. So combining those two and then acquiring E-Trade. Um, so E-Trade bring, we're very excited about E-Trade. They bring a couple of things that are really exciting to us. One is they have a direct-to-consumer brand. So Morgan Stanley, does not have a direct-to-consumer brand. I mean, people know who Morgan Stanley is, but we do not advertise directly to consumers. We, you know, have always gone through advisors um, and their relationships to build our business and wealth management. So this gives us a separate brand that's a well-established brand in the direct-to-consumer space. It also gives us a, a stock plan administration business that we can add to our existing stock plan business. And so as we think about an avenue for growth for us, um, you know, going to the workplace through these stock plan business, um, leveraging corporate relationships that we have both at the Morgan Stanley level through our investment bank and corporations that we have relationships with on the private client side, um, you know, there are huge opportunities for us to deliver wealth management services to the workplace. Um, and the stock plan administration is a, is a way to get into that business. But then once we have that participant as part of our stock plan business, we can offer a pretty broad range of financial services to that individual in financial wellness. And we can handle clients of any spectrum. So they can choose what they want from us when they need that stock plan. They can say, you know what, I just like to trade my own equities and options. We will have a direct-to-consumer E-Trade account that will be best in greed in that. Um, we will have a robo, we have a robo-advisor that has all the insight from Morgan Stanley built into it. So if you say, I don't need an advisor, but I don't want to trade myself, I want a packaged investment solution. 
We have a virtual advisor group that can service a client remotely through a phone-based salary plus bonus advisor team. And then we have our 15,000 advisors. So from the most sophisticated, wealthiest clients coming out of those stock plans to the ones who want to be the most self-directed, we can offer a full spectrum of options. And so that will let acquisition for us as money comes out of both the stock plan and 401k businesses in the workplace. And, you know, as we thought about the strategy going direct to consumer, obviously you mentioned uh, Wealthfront, um, Betterment, some of the robo-advisors that are more new to the business. Um, we looked at that landscape and thought it was going to be very difficult for us to compete with Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, E-Trade, Ameritrade. These are big, well-established brands in the marketplace. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars marketing. They have 401k businesses. This is the case of, of, uh, of Schwab and uh, Fidelity. They have stockland businesses. So they have an inborn theater of clients. So it was really hard to think about how to get direct-to-consumer in a startup fashion for us, for Stanley. So buying E-Trade fits, checks a lot of boxes for us in terms of filling out the spectrum of wealth services that we're able to offer, as well as giving us a um, view into the direct-to-consumer business, which we really haven't had before. And, you know, a lot of our clients, they have accounts at one of the direct-to-consumer brokerages. So they have a corpus of their money with their advisor, but they trade their own stock with a Schwab or an E-Trade or an Trade. So this is a chance for us to say, bring those accounts to us at a Morgan Stanley company, we can aggregate them together, we can do a financial plan on the whole um, asset base, etc. So lots of benefits of consolidating assets as well. Yeah, you largely answered my follow-up question. That's that's a great answer on the E-Trade uh, acquisition and more in depth than I've been able to read you know, in, in the public channels and it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, in terms of technology, uh, you touched on it briefly, but Obviously, you've had insurgents from uh, from those robo-advisors, like you mentioned. In terms of technology, where do you see the industry going? Do you see those robo-advisors taking a larger slice of the market share? Or do you think we just all arrive at the same place where it's you know robo-advisor-like technology assisted by human advisors, sort of the way that Morgan Stanley has scaled it in a variety of different solutions? I mean, look, I think it's very client-specific. I think there are a group of clients who want to trade stock themselves and don't want to pay for advice. And, you know, we want to be able to serve those clients. There are clients that want advice in a, in a robo-fashion and don't want to deal with an advisor. And we want to have a solution there. Um, and then there are a whole, lit, you know, a spectrum of clients around what type of advice they want. Um, you know, my... my my belief is, and I think you're seeing this in the development of a lot of these platforms, is that we think the winning combination is human advice and market insight that Morgan Stanley has with technology. So technology enables our advisors do with our clients every day and the, the solutions that are able, able to deliver. And it's very hard to imagine a computer or an algorithm or a five-questionnaire risk profile being able to deliver the same type of results that our advisors are able to. Or maybe they just feel like it's not worth it to deal with an advisor. But, you know, I, we believe that there's tremendous value in having human advice and make huge investments in the technology to help our advisors. Well, we, 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 we agree with you, Ben, on that. And I, and I think it begs the question that I often get asked. I'd love to 
hear you respond to a, a question that's often asked of me of FAs and potential clients and prospects of Morgan Stanley. How do I prepare myself and my family for the end of my business career? Meaning, I've just sold my business. I've come into this liquid set of assets. I'm going to turn it over to Morgan Stanley. And how do I know you guys are going to make it bulletproof for me? Because frankly, as an entrepreneur, I'm giving up all of that control that I had in my business. And I'm now handing it over to you guys. What comfort do you give these guys? How do you set that framework for your uh, potential prospects? Look, it, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, often it's hard because um, for those you know, entrepreneurs in particular, you mentioned you know, a lot of the source of their wealth, you know, for, to the extent they've been successful, has come through concentration and ownership. So they, they had a lot of their network tied up in a company that was then sold um, and often extolling the virtues of a diversified portfolio sort of cuts against everything that they've done in their career to date because it's exactly the lack of diversification and their success in that that has created the wealth to begin with. So I think there's an education of when you move to that next phase, it's more about staying wealthy than about getting wealthy again. Um, and so that's sometimes a difficult uh, discussion to have. And then I think the other thing that often is far more, I mean, when I go to meet with big clients and prospects, I don't, I come often as the product guy, which I've been talking about, like all the products that are, are on our platform and some interesting private equity funds that we've been doing, et cetera. And, you know, oftentimes you will see the client's eyes glaze over when you start discussing those products because they don't really, a lot, a lot of folks don't really care that much. Where I see clients really get engaged um, is when I'm coming in at the tail end or the person coming in after me starts to talk about more, um, the goals and aspirations for what you want this money to do. And I think that's where our best advisors are spending the most time with their clients in terms of helping them deal with multi-generational wealth. Um, you know, most parents, one of their biggest fears is if they've been very successful, is that somehow that success is going to mess up their children. Um, and how do you handle passing wealth on in a responsible way? How do you deal that? You know, how do you feel about charity? How do you feel about your children and how to pass that wealth on? So I, I find it interesting that a lot of clients, we've, we've, we in the industry, I think, sort of think that clients are desperately interested in what we've been showing to them over the years, which is, you know, your mid-cap U.S. growth manager beat its benchmark by 80 basis points. I, I actually have that different experience, which is a lot of clients that I've interacted with are much more interested in the personal side the much more idiosyncratic side of their wealth and how it's handled, how their family is handling it. And our best advisors, I mean, that's why our advisors are, our best advisors are so successful is they have been able to be successful and use the platform from an investing perspective, but really engage with clients on what's most important to them. And, and that's often not the investment side of the equation. Well, listen, you're, make, you're making a great case for that holistic approach that Morgan Stanley provides. And I, and I will say this, I've been on calls with Morgan Stanley FAs that even though I'm representing Skybridge, we're, we're coming at the call from a very holistic approach, which I think the prospects uh, do, do appreciate. Um, before we let you go, Ben, uh, uh, one other question often comes up. I'm just curious to see how you would react to this yeah. as well. Uh, uh, the meteor strike that has hit planet Earth in March. Uh, your, 
you know, I, I hear it all the time, you know, it's a 10,000 year flood. But the problem on Wall Street is that the 10,000 year flood seems to happen every five years, Ben, and you know that. And so, so what do you say to clients? Yeah. What, what is the, okay, yeah, it's a 100 year uh, pandemic, uh, the March performance, certainly in certain funds, our fund, other funds, uh, uh, was a was a was a rough turn, but how do you condition clients for the long pull? How do you condition clients to recognize that the markets and asset prices, from a fundamental perspective, they lurch upward despite the creakiness and psychological uncertainties and vagaries in the world? What is your message there? Yeah, look, I mean, I think this one this one's an interesting one. It's almost like you know we spend the time after a crisis, solving the last crisis, but not solving the next one. And so, you know, I think the, 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 obviously the financial system itself, you know, the GCP banks and the, you know, the large banks in this country, weathered the storm of COVID pretty seamlessly. Um, and I think that's a testament to the fact that we've been working with regulators for the last 11 years trying to bolster uh, the global financial adequacy and all of that, I think it worked quite well versus in the GFC where it clearly did not. So I think you know, we should give ourselves some credit as a society for, for, for addressing some of the issues that existed before, but clearly this one raised a whole nother set of issues. I think a couple things. One is the market dysfunction uh, was, was tough. Like certain parts of the credit markets really did not function very well during this crisis. Um, and I think there will be uh, a lot of scrutiny put on how these markets function um, and what we can do to help um, bolster them and make them more resilient. Uh, I think, you know, it is not good when the government has to step in and buy high yield bonds, uh, step in to save ultra short duration funds. Like that, that's not a great fact pattern. Um, and so I think there will be on the back of this, I think some post-mortem around how do we think about, in particular, the credit markets and how they function during the crisis. Um, but from a client perspective, I mean, we try very hard. It's, it's difficult, obviously, when you're watching CNN and you're watching the tote board on the right go up with all the you know people getting sick and dying from this sure. horrible disease. I think, you know, we try very, we're trying very hard to get our clients to look past temporary interruptions in the market and to become overly fixated on what whether the, the S&P is red or green in a given day and really talk to them about how they're doing longer term. Um, and then to try, to the extent it's, it's um, feasible, is to try to convince people to that this is exactly the time when you, either need, to, you need to stick, definitely need to stick to your guns from an asset allocation perspective. The worst thing and everybody, you know, there's so many stats about this. The worst thing that happens is people sell and don't get back in um, and miss uh, the up in the market. Um, but at the very least, stay invested and stay confident in the plan that we develop, that this is a temporary, you know, in a longer term, much longer term um, picture. And if you zoom out far enough, the market kind of goes up to the right pretty uninterruptedly. Um, but also, maybe there's a chance to take advantage of this. And maybe we can upgrade some of our names and our portfolios because some of these really good companies have been really damaged here over the short term. But maybe we can, it's a good entry point. So, I mean, I think our best advisors were looking for opportunities early and also very much cautioning clients 
you, the worst thing you can do is go to cash right now. Um, and that is something that is, you know, I think historically been a flaw of retail, which is the market goes down and, and retail sells. And I think that's right. something really, really hard to avoid. Well, listen, I think it's a great messaging. I think we should, we should, we should end it there because I think you're, your, your message is uh, the perfect one. You have to stay invested, not get juked out by short-term interference. And the people that are able to do that, now I'll just go back to Amazon before we finish. I mean, uh, since its inception, its IPO in 1997, that stock has gone down 50% six times, Ben. If you got juked out of that stock at any one of those moments in your fear basis, as your fear is taking over, you missed arguably yeah. one of the best stocks that have ever uh, uh, been created or best yeah, companies in USA. Yeah, they're amazing stats. If you miss the best hundred days in the market in any given year, I mean, it, the, the 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 value of staying invested and sticking to an asset allocation is pivotal. So that's that's kind of an overarching mantra we have. All right. Well, we we'd love to get you back as we get uh, to the end of the year. Uh, certainly after November the third, Ben, there will be a new president or a new administration. It's one or the other. And would love to get Morgan Stanley and your take on what 2021 looks like post-election. So hopefully um, you'll come back it, on. With it, it seems far away at this point with everything going on, but I would love to come back. Thank you for having it, me. It, 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 do, it does seem far away. There's no question about that, but it's only 90 days. And, and just remember that takes you right back to uh, 90 days ago, it takes you back to May 8th. I mean, my God, just think about how quick that flew by. So, uh, All right. Well, Ben, thank you. Definitely been a crazy year. Thanks for coming on. It's great to see you. And uh, we'll get you back on Salt Talks before too long. 